Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Judges, chapter 16. Judges, chapter 16, beginning at verse 1. We're going to look at the story of Samson. Wasn't that just a sweet, sweet time of worship this morning? (laughs) Very thankful for all of our volunteers that help week in and week out. Judges, chapter 16. We're going to look at Samson in one of the most famous stories And to get us thinking about the theme of our passage today, I want you to turn to your neighbor just for a second, turn behind you or in front of you, and I want you to tell your neighbor, what is your most favorite love song, romantic love song of all time, okay? Doesn't have to be Christian. What's your most, it could even be country if that's music. What's your most famous love song of all time, favorite? All right, I can tell this is, uh, this is generating some good discussion. Yes. <laughs> well, let me give you a few popular ones. I instantly thought of Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You. Oh, yeah. Woo. That gets me every time I hear that one. Yeah. I looked up some Michael Jackson songs. He sang the song The Way You Make Me Feel. And he says this, I'll be working from 9 to 5 to buy things to keep you by my side. I never felt so in love before. Just promise me, baby, you'll love me forevermore. That sounds very different than when Michael Jackson sings that I know. (laughs) Kind (laughs) of a little little more awkward or you just kind of say it like that, isn't it? Yeah. And then, of course, the Beatles famously sang, all you need is, love is all you need, right? I mean, and they're partially right, partially. We're going to get to that today with Samson. Samson thought all he needed was love, and let's see, let's see where that gets him, okay? So starting at verse 1, it says, One day Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute. He went in to spend the night with her. Let's stop there for a moment. How are things going so far for Samson? (laughs) Kind of obvious, yeah. Samson has had this problem. He sees something, and he has to have it. Chapter 14, he saw a Philistine woman, and he told his parents, get her for me. He saw the honey in the lion's carcass, which is a weird story, I know, but it's just proving that he has to have it. He sees what he wants, and he takes it, even if it violates his Nazarite vow to the Lord that we learned about in chapter 13. What's troubling here, too, is that he's in what city? Did you catch it? Gaza. That is about 45, 50 miles south in Philistine enemy territory. The Philistines were the dominant enemy at the time, and God had raised up, he had called Samson to be this leader who would lead them, the Israelites, over the Philistines, and yet he is spending the night with a prostitute deep in enemy territory. Verse 2, the people of Gaza were told, Samson is here. So they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. They made no move during the night, saying, at dawn, we'll kill him. Now, this is a big deal because by this point, Samson's strength is probably legendary. Remember how he killed a lion? Remember what his weapons were? His bare hands. Remember how he killed a thousand people in chapter 15? Remember what his weapon was there? Not his bare hands, but 
the jawbone of a donkey. I mean, Samson's reputation is growing among the Philistines. He is public enemy number one, and yet he has the audacity to spend the night with a prostitute in enemy territory. One scholar says it like this, like any pattern or addiction or compulsion, the cycle of Samson's recklessness is only increasing here. So let's keep going. Verse three, but Samson lay there only until the middle of the night. Then he got up and took hold of the doors of the city gate together with the two posts and he tore them loose, bar and all. He lifted them to his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. So if we're understanding what the text is saying, he took the city gates, would have been two stories high, very heavy, and he carried them some 40 miles. This is one tough guy. (laughs) By the way, up to this point, for the most part, anytime Samson does something like this, we've seen the spirit of the Lord come on him to do it. Do we see the spirit of the Lord mentioned here? No, I think the spirit of the Lord is active here, enabling him to do it. But the fact that he is not mentioned begins to make us wonder, is Samson really presuming about his strength? Is he thinking, I can just do whatever I want to do, and God's going to come through. He's going to save me. He's going to just deliver me like he has in the past. I mean, one of the most dangerous things that we've seen to Samson and to his soul is success. Success seems to be going to his head. And if you relate it to us, you know, I don't wish adversity on anyone or suffering, But one of the most dangerous things to your soul can be success. If we don't give the glory to whom whom it goes, success has a way if we're not careful of poisoning our minds and our souls. And it seems to be doing that here to Samson. Verse 4. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was what? Delilah. By the way, her name, we think, means of the night. If you look at verses 1, 2, and 3, we saw the word night mentioned many times, and now he is loving a woman of the night. Dun, dun, dun. I mean, this is important for us to see that. Verse 5, the rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, see if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. And that's about 28 pounds. Each one will give that to her, which is more. That's more. That's a bigger treasure than what Gideon had at the end of chapter 8 as a judge. Verse 6, so Delilah said to Samson, tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Samson answered her, if anyone ties me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, and she tied him with them. Which, by the way, these are probably animal tendons of some kind, and they're fresh. And as part of Samson's vow to the Lord, he was not to come in contact with any dead animals or dead people or dead bodies, and yet he is violating that vow again. We've seen him do that multiple times. Verse 9, with men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the bowstrings as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. By the way, if you're Samson at this point, what should you be thinking about Delilah? (laughs) 
Let's keep reading. See what he keeps thinking. Verse 10, then Delilah said to Samson, you have made a fool of me. You lied to me, honey. Come now. (laughs) That's what my translation says. Come now. Tell me how you can be tied. And he said, if anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and tied him with them. Then with men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes off his arms as if they were threads. You know, it makes me wonder, does Samson think this is a big game right now? Because in, in chapter 14, he came up with that riddle at the wedding feast. I mean, he loves riddles and competition. And maybe he thinks, you know what? This is just some good, friendly fun. I'm going to win anyway. Verse 13 Delilah then said to Samson, all this time you've been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me how you can be tied. He replied, if you weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric on the loom and tighten it with the pen, I'll become as weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids of his head, wove them into the fabric and tightened it with the pen. Again, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and pulled up the pen in the loom with the fabric. By the way, this is getting closer to the secret of his strength. He's talking about his hair now. He is getting closer. He's sliding a little bit more. He's playing with fire here. Verse 15. Then she said to him, how can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you have made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength while she stroked his beard and touched his biceps. (laughs) And verse 16, (laughs) with such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to what? To death of it. By the way, that's foreshadowing what's going to happen. Verse 17, so he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head because I have been a Nazarite. We learned about that in chapter 13. I've been a Nazarite dedicated to God From my mother's womb, if my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as any other man. Now, one of the things that strikes me when I read that verse, you know, we knew that he was dedicated to the Lord from birth. He was to be raised in the ways of the Lord. He was to lead the Israelites to victory as a man of God. And yet, the last couple of weeks in chapters 14 and 15, we have definitely not seen that side of Samson. And so it's kind of made us wonder, does Samson really know about his calling and what he's dedicated to do? And we see here very clearly that he knows. It's crystal clear in his mind the way he's supposed to be and what his calling is supposed to be. And yet he has basically ignored it to this time. Verse 18. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back once more He has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. After putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him. And his strength left him. Then she called Samson. The Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll just go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Isn't that sad? He didn't know the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him. They gouged out his eyes and took him down to Gaza. 
Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding grain in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Dun, dun, dun. So we'll stop right there. What would you say is Samson's number one priority, his number one passion, and his number one problem in this chapter? And it's the same answer. What is it? What is it? Samson has to have love, romance, Delilah. One of the senior saints this morning told me in the 8 o'clock class, this is a woman who said this, she said she reads that passage and says, watch out for women, and she joked and laughed. (laughs) (laughs) Samson has to have romance and love. That is his number one all-consuming passion and priority and actually his problem. You know, all throughout the book of Judges, we've seen this theme of idolatry, idol worship, that an idol is anything that you and I put before God. It's anything that we think that we have to have in our heart of hearts to be satisfied, to be complete, to feel significant and at rest and secure. And for Samson, one of his idols is the love of a woman. And so I want to talk about idolatry a little bit more. I've talked about it a few times. It just keeps coming up. I want, to, I want to look at three truths, three truths about idolatry from Samson's life today. And here's the first one, okay? The first truth is it is possible to have multiple idols in our lives at the same time. It is possible to have multiple things or people that come between us and God all at the same time. And so let's think about Samson's life, not just this week, but in previous weeks. What are some of Samson's idols? Well, we said a couple weeks ago, one of his big idols is himself. He sees what he wants, and he takes what he wants, and he doesn't care what God thinks. He is defining for himself what is right and wrong. He is all about himself, and that causes him to do all sorts of crazy things and get him into trouble big time. By the way, do we live in an age that encourages you to be all about yourself? Many cultural analysts say we live in an age of expressive individualism, expressive individualism, meaning that we love our freedom, we want to decide for ourselves what is right and wrong, we struggle with commitment, we even get offended when people disagree with us, all because we have put ourselves at the center, and that's Samson. Another idol in his life, too, is not just self, but also, I would call it adventure and recklessness. How many of you love a challenge and a little bit of an adrenaline rush in your life? Oh, I do too. But Samson seems to take it to the extreme. It's like he's playing with fire. Let me spend the night in deep enemy territory because I'll be fine. This will be fun. And then the third idol we see, so self, adventure, adrenaline, whatever you want to call it, and then women or romance. Because this is the third woman that we know of that he's wanted. Chapter 14, he wanted a Philistine who didn't believe in God. Chapter 16, he spent the night with a prostitute, and now he is in this love relationship with Delilah. He has to have her. He wants her more than anything else. So it is possible, number one, to have multiple idols in our lives, and when we have more than one, it creates this kind of toxic stew, this poisonous compound in our life that drives us away from the Lord. Let me go to the truth number two. 
The second truth, let's read this together. Idols blind us, deceive us, and distort reality. Let's read it again. Idols blind us, deceive us, and distort reality. So think of Samson's idols again. Think of how they blinded him and deceived him. For one, he overreacted like crazy. You know, if somebody offended him, he had to get even. I'm going to set their crops on fire. I'm going to destroy a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. He overreacted. Our idols make us overreact so we get extra angry or extra sad or extra anxious because we feel that we have to have them if they're threatened or they're going to be lost. So he overreacted, but it also made him overconfident in many ways. His idols made him think, you know what? I'm fine. I can get myself out of this situation. Even when his hair was cut, he thought, you know what? I'm just going to get up. I'm going to shake myself free. Everything will be fine. But it wasn't. Idols make us overreact, make us be overly confident in the wrong thing. And sadly, they blind us to what reality is. Remember what Jesus said about truth? He said, you will know the truth, and the truth will do what to you? Set you free. But idols twist it. They don't give you the truth. And instead of setting you free like they promised, they actually enslave you. Because you're not knowing Jesus' truth. It's not setting you free. Samson is majorly blinded to the reality of Delilah, who tries to get his strength several times. There should have been several aha moments in that relationship that made him think, you know what? Maybe Delilah doesn't have my best interest at heart. <laughs> he can't see it because that's his God. One theologian said it like this, we know that a good thing has become an ultimate thing or an idol in our lives when its demands on us exceed proper boundaries. So for instance, if you make an idol out of work or career, this may mean that you work until you ruin your health or you break the law in order to get ahead or get a profit. But if you make an idol out of love and romance, this may mean that you allow the lover to exploit you and abuse you and manipulate you, and it may cause terrible blindness to the pathologies in the relationship. Do we ever struggle with this idol of love and romance today? You bet we do. We are just as blinded as Samson is. If you're single and you want to find someone, which is a good desire, by the way, oftentimes I've seen even committed Christians when they're single compromise their relationship with the Lord for that person. They compromise their faith. They stop pursuing the Lord. They give themselves away in every area of their lives, including sexually before it's time. I mean, I believe sex is a great gift of God. God designed it. He created it between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. It's awesome. It's a form of worship. But when it's used outside that context, it's enslaving, deceiving, and distorting. But it's not just single people who need this too. Married people need this as well. Because if we have this view of love that Samson did, it's going to cause us to put these godlike expectations on our spouse and by the way, your spouse cannot handle those expectations. No human being can handle those kind of godlike, divine expectations that we sometimes put on our spouse to meet our needs. And so sometimes it'll drive you away from that relationship. 
It'll drive you to seek it in pornography or in flirting or in an affair. Sometimes I'll see even older men who will pursue a younger woman. Even though they're married, they pursue this illicit relationship because they want to feel young again because they have the God of romance and adventure driving them. Single people need to see this. Married people need to see this. All of us need to see it. Sometimes I even see people who can't stand to be without a boyfriend or girlfriend, and so the moment they break up, they're dating someone two minutes later, all because romance and love is their God. You know, if you look at Samson's life, ironically, by the end of his past, this passage, Samson has been spiritually blind this whole time, but he becomes physically blind. Samson's been spiritually enslaved this whole time, but he's actually enslaved now in prison, grinding grain like a slave would have done. And so if you have this view of love and romance like Samson does, ironically, you're never going to find it. It can never be the number one thing in your life. Your expectations will only crush the other person. So how do we actually have a right view of love and romance? How do we actually get rid of our idols, whatever they may be? Well, this is my last point, number, number three. The way to break an idol is by what? Worship. The way to break an idol, and I could have put this other ways, is by worship. Because when you have an idol in your life, it's not just a thing, it's everything. You have come into this worship-like relationship with that thing, with that person, with romance, with adventure, whatever it is. And so you've worshiped your way into that thing, and now you have to worship your way out of it to Jesus Christ. You've thought this thing being worthy of your worth And you have to break it and say only Jesus is worthy of our worth. And the way we do that is by thinking about Jesus and singing about him and meditating on and worshiping him. Because think of how Jesus relates to us. He's a king and we are his subjects. He's a father and we are his children. He's a shepherd and we are his sheep. But the image here with love is in scripture is we are the bride of Christ and he is our bridegroom. It's like we're married to Jesus. It's like Jesus is the ultimate lover, the ultimate spouse. And think of what Jesus did for us. He moved heaven and earth to come find us. He rescued us from the fire-breathing dragon, Satan. He broke the spell of our idols so we could be free. I mean, there's only one being who can actually complete you. I mean, we joke all the time, you complete me to our spouse, but that's not true. There's only one being who can really complete us, and that's Jesus. Now, if you're a man here, raise your hand for a second. Us men, we don't like this image. We're the bride of Christ. That's very feminine, you know? That's wimpy. But this is what Samson needed to know. Macho man Samson, who killed a 1,000 people with a jawbone, who destroyed a lion with his bare hands, he needed to know that the love he was looking for could never be found in a Delilah. It could only be found in the Lord. That there is only one love that would never leave him or forsake him or reject him or deny him or betray him. And that's only Jesus Christ. He needed that and you and I need it. If you're single here today, let me talk to you for a moment. This passage reminds us that your all in all can never be in another person. It can't. 
And if you make that person your all in all, it will lead to the Samson and Delilah-like relationship where you will use each other, where you'll take advantage of each other. It won't work. By the way, single people, was Jesus, was he single? And yet he was the most complete, I would argue, fulfilled human being ever. But if you're also married, you need, this, you need this reminder too because often we put those expectations on our spouse to be Jesus for us, and guess what? They can't. Marriage can be awesome when Jesus is the center. It can be like a slice of heaven on earth. It can be wonderful. That's how the Bible created it to be. But it can never replace your relationship with Jesus Christ. And interestingly, when you actually put Jesus at the center, when he's the number one thing in your marriage relationship, you actually have a better marriage. <laughs> The way to break an idol is by worship. We need to know the love that Jesus has for us. We just sang about it. Oh, how he loves us. Think of what Jesus did for us. He became unlovely. Isaiah 53 says that he had no beauty or majesty that we should desire him. John chapter 1, he came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. I mean, if you've ever been rejected in love, Jesus knows what that's like. If you've ever been betrayed, Jesus knows what it's like. And Jesus faced the ultimate rejection, the ultimate betrayal, so that you and I could come in and be lovely and be acceptable and be clean and not be damaged goods. We are wiped clean, whiter than snow, because Jesus took it all for us on the cross. If we really know this, it starts to break the grip of the idols of our heart. John Lennon of the Beatles famously said, all you need is love partially true. We need love. We need the spousal love of Jesus Christ. That's what breaks our idols. That's what will enable you to truly love others without using them or them using you. It will enable you to set proper boundaries in your relationships. It will enable you to have healthy relationships and a marriage that lasts. Let's pray. And I'll invite the worship team forward. Father, I pray right now that you would show us what our idols are. Lord, if it's this love and romance and affection thing that Samson wanted, certainly not a bad desire, but it can't be the ultimate thing, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would help our marriages to be healthy, centered on you, that even today would mark a day when we would put a flag in the ground and say our marriage is going to be all about Jesus Christ. Lord, bring healing to them. Lord, if we're single and dating or want to be dating, give us a great contentment in you that no man, no woman can ultimately define us. Only you can. And that will enable us to have good dating relationships, Father. Father, break the spell that romance often has over us and help us to put our affections on you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.